Welcome to the podcast for the 2009 Forum of Instant Response and Security Team Conference in Kyoto, Japan. I'm your host, Martin McKay, and these interviews were recorded live at the conference between June 29th and July 3rd, 2009. For more information on the conference, please visit conference.first.org. And now for our interview in progress. Well, this is Martin. I'm talking to Kurt Sauer, the Managing Director of Spinlock Technologies, and he just gave a talk, I Am a Kanji, Understanding Security on One Character at a Time. How are you doing today, Kurt? And can you tell me a little bit about your, your uh, talk? Sure. I'm doing great today. Uh, today, we had a great opportunity to talk about some of the experiences that I've had uh, living in Japan for the last year. As you know, before I came to Japan, I was working as the Chief Security Officer at Skype in London. And, um, oh, for one reason or another, I guess I decided to have a, a bit of an early midlife crisis and do something that I've wanted to do for a, an awful long time, and that is to learn an Asian language. But once I came to Japan and started to study the language full time and putting it in the context of information security, I just found out how many significant differences there are from the way that I had thought about information security in the past, and really just basic human communication. So that was the point of today's talk, was just talking about what are those things that struck me the most uh, in the past uh, 12 or 18 months being in Japan, and how do those have an impact on uh, not only my own incident response activities, but in the CSER community as a whole. Well, you, you mentioned a number of kanji, which probably aren't appropriate for a podcast, but one of the other things that you mentioned is the role of the individual in an organization, and can you go into that in a little bit of detail? Well, uh, the first point that I was trying to make about the kanji was simply that kanji itself is just a, it's a method of, of communication, and kanji as a non-Asian learner of, uh, of an Asian language, kanji just turns out to be a very big stumbling block. But kanji is just a methodology, I guess, for getting a message from one person to another. So what I stepped back and looked at was you know, how, how do humans communicate with one another? What is the whole, uh, the whole communication process? And not only is the kanji important, but can we look at the, the culture of the people who are communicating and the whole context? And how does that impact the way that people communicate with one another? That's true in business. It's true in, in personal relationships. But this whole cultural background uh, relies so heavily uh, on this shared common experience of the past that I think that that was a, a big break from what I was used to. Well, you use a very interesting word, context, and one of the things that I think you point out a number of times is that the meaning of a kanji depends on the context it's used in. Well, that's true for the for the kanji. These are, are ideographs, things that are symbols that have some sort of a meaning, and those symbols, uh, like any kind of a symbol you might use, depends on the context in which it's used. But I think if you compare uh, a, an ideographic language like Japanese to to English, it is far more difficult to simply sight read a uh, a sentence or a character and understand its meaning unless you understand the whole context in which it's being used. Because sometimes the meaning or the reading can change drastically depending on words that are around it. Well, and that also goes back to the context of the individual because that relates directly to what group or what uh, company they work for, and that can also change dramatically the nature of the conversation, can't it? Well, I think one of the points I wanted to raise in this talk today was 
was contrasting the way that businesses function in Asia versus the way that they work in the, in the Occident. Uh, trying to run an, an incident response team on an international scale, as we were doing at Skype, relied on a Western business principle of having very much a top-down management structure where there were clear policies laid out, there were clear goals for the organization, and there, were clear, there was a clear mission statement for the incident response team. But when you look at the way that business is conducted in Asia, you find that it's very much a reverse process. The decision-making is often not taken at the top level. And those decisions that are at the top level are more of a, a philosophic style. It's about the, the role of the company in society. The, the actual decision-making is made at a much lower level of the organization. So... Instead of having some sort of a very powerful mogul running security for the organization, instead it's important to have uh, mid-level managers who actually understand the philosophy of the company as it relates to security and to have them take their decisions on a day-by-day-by-day basis so that it's in consonance with these principles rather than policies. That's a really big switch, and I think it affects the way that incident responders outside of Asia uh, interact or need to interact with incident response teams that are located in Asia. Uh, uh, Occidental or or Western culture, it would be about a manager pushing down a decision tree, but I think you made a very good point that in the Orient, uh, in the Eastern culture, it's more of a a, um, consensus building between middle-level managers pushing that idea up to senior management. Right. I I learned a very interesting lesson trying to uh, get a a feel for the way that decision-making is made in Japan. And one of the words that I learned was the word ringi. And the word ringi refers to what's called a consensus decision-making model uh, within Japanese business. And ringi has in the character a symbol that means to go around or to make circles. And in fact, that's the way that middle managers take decisions in companies. Rather than having some strategic input from the top level, a middle level manager will come up with an idea, a very organic idea, uh, a sort of let's try it out kind of idea. They'll write a proposal for that and they will literally walk it around in these circles amongst all of the peer managers and the people who are in charge of various departments. That decision isn't even known to the senior management until it makes its way around this consensus building process. So it's kind of a slow process and it can take a long time. But the advantage to it is that when the, when the decision is reached by informal consensus among all those managers and is taken to the top level management, there is effectively no chance that it's going to be rejected. So there's a good sense of execution in the end that's going to come back to the hands of the very person who wrote that ringy paper in the first place. Well, how can Occidental or Western security professionals take some of this information and use it when communicating with their Oriental counterparts? I think that the main lesson to be learned from this is not so much the method by which they, they make decisions, but instead by thinking about what the communications barriers uh, are between a, an, or, an oriental information security team and perhaps somebody who's doing that same business in another company in Asia or another company outside of Asia. 
there's a real tendency to, to form into cliques or in-groups when working in a professional environment in Japan. So typically, if you're working for Company X, you'll work with other people within Company X, but it's very unusual to work with even peers outside of that company unless there is a really clear and exigent need to do so. So that means it's hard to have long-term, previously built-up ties outside of the company. Now, if you think about the way that we think about incident response in Europe and in the U.S. and in Australia, most of the time we're talking about building these relationships well in advance. And in fact, the first organization is really built around the idea of building teams and communities and understanding people in advance. So I can see where there can be a real barrier to including Japanese teams in a really meaningful way, perhaps not just as members, but as real team building exercises. So what I think is important for incident responders to understand outside of Asia is the role, the glue role that that uh, national level incident response teams can play, or that very large corporate certs can play in providing that trusted pathway from outside, wherever outside is, to the inside of this organization that is filled with people who are hesitant to talk to people outside of their own team. In large part, what you're, you're talking about doing is creating a larger team that people can be a member of and use that for the communication between companies. Is that correct? Yes. I think that the idea here is that, especially in the case of large conglomerates in Japan, those incident response teams within companies to be effective have to be present at a very low level of the company, and that doesn't scale very well for trying to communicate outside. So all these low-level teams in this conglomerate can work through some focal point corporate incident response team and have their communications filter out through perhaps even a national-level cert as this sort of glue or transit point uh, to the outside. Over time, of course, as people learn more about their peers, then that communication barrier may break down further. But right now, we're still at a point where there's a lot of companies who perhaps have or want to have incident response capability, but they just don't have the cultural wherewithal to be able to build the or forge the connections necessary to really make for an effective global incident response capability. Well, Kurt, are there any closing thoughts you'd like to leave people with? I just want to say that it's been a really ex interesting experience to to be in Japan and to be in Asia for this past uh, 18 months, and I'm intending to be here for quite some time more. The, the things that I have learned clearly are just scraping the surface. There are people who are far more experts on, uh, on Asian culture than I am, and I can only look at it from the point of view uh, of a CSO or of somebody managing incident response teams. But it's quite clear that there's a well of interesting experiences, a well of, uh, of new ideas in terms of process improvement and being able to do things in a way that doesn't focus so much on measurement and statistics, but more on processes and human understanding of the problem. So I think that there's a give and take that can come between the West and the East that we really haven't started to develop. And I hope that this just becomes a launching point for you know, more communications in the future. Well, I've been talking with Spinlock Technologies, Kurt Sauer, and thank you very much, Kurt. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to the podcast for the 2009 First Conference in Kyoto, Japan. For more information on First, please visit their website at www.first.org. I'm your host, Martin McKay, and for, to hear more of my podcasts, please visit netsecpodcast.com or my blog at www.mckyay.net. Thank you very much. <laughs>